my name is Sybil Claiborne, and I'm the chair of the Penn Women's Committee. I want to welcome all of you to this evening's program. The second in a series of three on the last 30 years of feminism and its influence on women writers. The first program, Opening the Golden Notebook, was a reappraisal of Doris Lessing's novel. Our panelists talked about the influence this book had on both their lives and their work. Continuing the exploration, tonight's program is on taboos, striking them down and striking back. And our final program, Women's Writing and the Future, will take place on April 20th here in the same auditorium. This series was put together to celebrate the fifth anniversary of the Penn Women's Committee. It was founded in 1986 by a number of women in Penn who felt the absence of a strong voice in Penn despite their numerical equality with male writers. Its aim was to provide a place where writers could talk about women's issues in literature and where they could develop ties with women writers in other countries. To a large extent, this description, this describes the work of the committee for the last five years. During that time, women writers and scholars from all over the globe have met with us. A Nigerian novelist who's written 19 books, a literary critic and translator from the Soviet Union, an Indian scholar who helped put together a huge anthology. And no matter where our guests are from and how established they are, the message is always the same. Women writers don't count in their country. That's why our second mandate to establish an international network of women writers has seemed so vital to the work of the committee. At international congresses and at informal meetings, members of our committee have met with women from abroad and talked and mapped out strategies. But the process of establishing a network is slow and often frustrating. Now we can report a success. At the recent Congress in Vienna, Meredith Tack succeeded in getting international pen to establish a women's committee, one of its four permanent committees. As its first president, Meredith has been mandated to form a board and raise money to bring together women writers from the developing world with their counterparts from the industrial West. Briefly, this has been the work of our committee to promote a greater recognition of women's literature and to forge international links. And the need for a forum for women writers continues. At this moment, we face many hazards. Here at home, the shrinking economy, the assault from the right on women and art, internationally poverty and repression 
and political turmoil. Whatever happens out there, we know that women in every corner of the globe will be struggling to find their voices. As women and as writers, we must continue to provide a place where we can help each other raise those voices loud enough to be heard. If there are PEN members here tonight who are not part of our committee but would like to know more about us, there is a sign-up sheet you can add your name to after the program. Also, uh, you've all been given a white card, and uh, we ask you uh, to turn it in at the end of the, it's, it's for questions, but also to turn it in at the end of the program and let us know how you heard about this event. Um, I'd like to finish with a word of thanks to the staff of Penn, to Karen Kennerly, Executive Director, for her encouragement, interest, and support, and to Pamela Pierce, who gives so much time and effort to the work of the committee. Uh, and I want to add one more thing before introducing the moderator, and that is that uh, at the end of the program, there'll be uh, a reception with wine and um, a few snacks, and we hope that you'll all be able to stay and uh, have something. Um, now, I'd like to introduce our moderator, Marilyn French, who will open the program with a political and historical background on taboos, and then introduce our panel. She hardly needs an introduction, for women all over the world have been influenced and inspired by her work. She is the author of three novels, The Women's Room, Bleeding Heart, and Her Mother's Daughter. She has written literary criticism and an analysis of the patriarchy, Beyond Power. This April, her nonfiction essay, The War Against Women, will be published by Summit Books. Thank you. I think it isn't on. Is it on? Working. Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Each of us will uh, speak for a little while and then uh, open the floor. We really want to spend the bulk of this evening in conversation with you. We're going to give our own feelings about taboos in as brief a time as we can, and then open it up to questions or comments. Apart from a few societies that still live in an ancient egalitarianism, all human societies 
have inbuilt power structures, ideologically based and unequal divisions of power. These structures grant power to a small group born into a particular sex, clan, or class, color in mixed color societies, and religion in societies with more than one religion. Because these arrangements grant most political and economic power to a small minority, all are unjust. Maintaining an unjust division requires all to be oppressive. The dominant group, or elite, uses a number of strategies to inhibit revolt. They co-opt people from an, uh, from commoner groups by rewarding them for loyalty to the elite. They sow dissension among dominated groups, that is, divide and conquer. And above all, they bury the real bases of discrimination in a mythology, a narrative that purports to recount the actual or symbolic origins of the people, and thus to encapsulate their identity. In most societies, this mythology is given religious status. The mythological narrative is mysterious, illogical, and often contradicts actual fact, especially with regard to the female role in the origins of life. It exists to mystify, to make invisible the real bases of power within society. Invisibility is reinforced by taboos, prohibitions on what may be said or done or shown. Humans, characteristically, tend not to think what they may not say. Taboos exist to keep people from thinking independently, which might lead them to question the cultural myth. Independent thought can make a person aware she's oppressed. It can also engender solidarity among oppressed groups who might unite to rebel against elite privilege. Even in, a so in societies with a mythology of free speech, expression is subject to taboos. This is true now and always has been in this and every state since patriarchy began. Public speech is always subject to taboos and the more public a medium, the more it is censored. While expressing opposition to the Gulf War publicly was difficult in some parts of the country, the extent of that opposition was utterly concealed, censored by television. Of all the media, books are the least censored in the United States, mainly because they reach such a small audience. Nevertheless, books, especially poetry and the novel, have been a potent force for social change. The novel, which is the more popular form now, is burdened by a wide gamut of taboos imposed over the centuries since its emergence. In this country, censorship is imposed by the government, which forbids publishing books that supposedly reveal its secrets, and forbids the importation of books it deems unfriendly to its policies, by publishers reluctant to print literature that breaks taboos, by reviewers who cry outrage when taboos are broken, by individual readers 
and by writers themselves, partly because taboos have the power to prevent people from even thinking along certain lines, and partly because humans are a social species, we want to be accepted. Writers tend not to write what they know will not be accepted, fearing to break taboos because they fear ostracism. <coughs> ostracism is almost always the result of breaking taboos. In some places, you can go to prison for it. In many places, you can be killed for it. Taboos cover every strata of society, but they vary by strata. So there are different taboos covering white men, men of color, working class men. The lower a group in the hierarchy, the more taboo its experience. Thus, women are most constrained by taboos, but women of color more than white women, poor more than middle class women, lesbians more than heterosexual women. All literary forms are governed by conventions that are paraded as aesthetic standards, but mask a political agenda. For example, a common convention in the early British novel is the omniscient narrative. This all-knowing, wise, just, and moral voice is always male and always part of the elite. Yet the convention insists that we trust him to understand and deal fairly with women and the lower classes. This convention symbolizes a political order whose mythology held that the elite governed for the good of all of society. Yet the very poor rarely appear in the work of these novelists. The first depiction of the very poor that I can think of in English literature is in the work of the early 19th century narrative poet George Crabbe, who often portrays young women cast into destitution by seduction and abandonment, and a hard-hearted, selfish, cruel middle class. He deeply influenced Jane Austen, who found a more socially acceptable way to depict the meanness of the rich. Crabbe was dropped from the mainstream canon. But most novelists ignored the actual life of the poor until the mid-19th century when Georges Sand in France wrote sympathetically about peasants, a class the British had wiped out. <coughs> and a host of female novelists like Hannah Moore, Maria Edgeworth, Harriet Ma Martineau, Charlotte Tana, and Frances Trollope began to depict the lives of poor children and women in the first social protest novels. By the end of the century, the deserving poor could be depicted sympathetically, but serious consideration of the unjust economic division of society and the real reasons for poverty remained taboo in fiction and was left to Karl Marx, who was influenced by Georges Sand. <laughs> not just the working classes, but work itself, manual work, was not acceptable subject matter for fiction until writers like Conrad legitimated it for men in an exotic setting. By the second half of the sen 20th century, Solzhenitsyn could base his entire novel One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich on a man's laborious setting of brick upon brick. But women's work remained taboo. It could be dealt with only humorously, 
as a maddening but essentially trivial matter of out-of-control souffles, children, and household appliances. To a large degree, this is still true. Women's work, the arduous, demanding, absolutely vital labor of rearing children and maintaining a household is rarely treated seriously in fiction, especially in film. There are important political reasons for this. Women's work, the physical and emotional maintenance of a household and the people in it, is unpaid. And it's treated by, as non-work by society at large and by the accountants who created the GNP. It is therefore a form of slavery. To treat it seriously would open this fact to question. When the second wave of feminism erupted in the late 1960s, most areas of female life were taboo. Although many women wrote fiction and female figu f females figured importantly in male fiction, the female figure in literature was either symbolic or a vehicle for feeling, emotional depth that was to some degree taboo in male characters. Not just women's work, but female sexuality was unexamined. Women's relation with women friends, sisters, and mothers were rarely shown in their true depth and complexity. These taboos have since been broken repeatedly. But many taboos concerning women remain. Our speakers tonight will deal with those of greatest importance to them. For me, three taboos stand out most clearly. Although they've been challenged, uh, the taboos, that is, have been challenged, reviewers, more than ordinary readers, continue to uphold these taboos. First, convention in fiction demands that female virtue be rewarded. While male figures are barred from living happily ever after, except in traditional comic novels, women who do not must be at fault. So generation of literary critics sought the fatal flaw in Shakespeare's Cordelia. Second, reviewers, more than readers, demand that female characters be likable, engaging. While male figures are granted the space to be what they are and to suffer what they are, from the narrator of Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground to characters by Henry Miller, William Burroughs, Thomas Pynchon, and lots of others, fictional, um, fictional males can be anything. Fictional females must bend their heads to expose the spot on the neck where, like the wolf surrendering to the one who's conquered him, they are vulnerable. But the preeminent taboos on women center on power. Female power and female powerlessness. It remains almost impossible to create a heroine who has worldly power and is sympathetic. The powerful female is evil. In a tradition that goes back at least to Shakespeare and is almost a chemical formula. Female plus power equals evil. Unless she renounces worldly power and maintains only a supernatural kind of beneficence. Yet we all probably know women with worldly power whom we like 
who are as complex as we ourselves, why can't we accept such a heroine? It's equally taboo to deal with female powerlessness in societal terms. Doing so would require a writer to show that across the globe, in every area of life, men oppress women. Writers can show a man or men oppressing a heroine if a man also saves her. What may not be said, and I think it's the greatest taboo in our society, is that men as a caste oppress women as a caste. Such statements are called male bashing, condemned as an unfair practice. Since the same taboo applies to the source of oppression of people of color in our society, one may not say that whites persecute blacks without being accused of racism, women of color are silenced with a vengeance. If they may not say they are oppressed by whites or men, they may not speak honestly about virtually the entire texture of their lives. The political underpinnings of these taboos are probably obvious. I hope so, because I don't have time to discuss them here. What you can count on is that what is unacceptable in literature is unacceptable to the power structure, which needs and deserves a discussion of its own in some other place. Thanks. Thank you. We're going to hear now from Liza Alther. Liza Alther was born in Tennessee, but translated herself to Vermont 25 years ago. She's written four best-selling novels, Kinflicks, Original Sins, Other Women, and Bedrock, which have been translated into 16 languages. She's also published nonfiction in many national periodicals and has read and lectured throughout North America, Western Europe, China, Indonesia, Australia, and New Zealand. She's currently working on her fifth novel. Liza Alther will discuss the writer's relation to taboos and the nature of taboos. Um, I, I looked up taboo in the dictionary just to be sure that I knew what I was supposed to be talking about tonight. And I found a definition that fit in pretty well with what I wanted to say, so I thought I'd start with reading it to you. Taboo, a prohibition excluding something from use, approach, or mention because of its sacred and inviolable nature. A proscription devised and observed by any group for its own protection. So to take the first half first, a prohibition excluding something from use, approach, or mention because of its sacred and inviolable nature. There are, of course, uh, many different kinds of fiction. There's fiction that's primarily for entertainment or escape. There's fiction that supports the status quo, fiction that attacks the status quo. But the kind that has always interested me most, uh, both as a reader and as a writer, is the kind that attempts to expand our understanding of the human psyche and its proper role in the cosmos. I have always read fiction um, 
looking for clues to the murder mystery that is life. And I have always, um, I have always written fiction as an act of self-exploration. Despite the insistence of many philosophers and psychologists that each individual possesses all qualities, um, as Marilyn said, every culture has its equivalent of Muammar Gaddafi's line of death concerning what is allowed to be done, uh, said, or even thought in polite society. And what isn't allowed is pushed across that culture's line of death into outer darkness. In other words, it becomes taboo. And it seems to me that one of the most important jobs of a writer is, and always has been, to cross these cultural lines of death and to retrieve this material that has been exiled into the unconscious. Some of the most popular topics for this kind of expulsion from the daylight world of polite discourse are sex, violence, power arrangements, death, as well as love and spirituality in their non-institutionalized senses. In other words, anything non-rational, so that it seems to me that the more repressive a society is, the more it actually needs its writers in order to retrieve this irrational material and attempt to restore wholeness to the culture, which may partially explain the rich literary traditions in such places as the American South or Catholic Ireland. Regarding the second part of the definition, a proscription devised and observed by any group for its own protection. Uh, of course, every group has somewhat different goals and circumstances and histories and therefore somewhat different taboos. But uh, as a general rule, in order for group members to know who they are, they need to know who they are not. So all the denied characteristics are labeled taboo and are pushed into the unconscious. The unconscious then assigns these despised characteristics to alien groups and the alien groups are then persecuted on the basis of these assigned characteristics. So, in other words, group cohesion is maintained by networks of taboos. This is the phenomenon of the other that is so dear to the hearts of, of deconstructionists. Historically, though, writers have often been what sociologists call marginal people. Actually, sociologists call them marginal men, but we'll call them marginal people, by which they, they mean that uh, writers are members of more than one group quite often. The history of American literature, for instance, um, involves the emergence of one category of marginal people after another. The New England writers, the Southern writers, the Jewish writers, the Afro-American writers, Native American writers, women writers, gay writers, all these writers were or are members both of their minority culture and also of the larger American culture. And one theory has it that the conflict between two cultures within a single head is one factor that produces a writer. In my own case, 
For instance, my father is a Virginian and my mother is a New Yorker. I spent my summers in upstate New York listening to my Yankee cousins make fun of my southern accent and describe all southerners as hypocritical idiots. And then I would spend the rest of the year in Tennessee listening to my classmates down there make fun of my Yankee accent and describe all Yankees as rude, crude imperialists. In addition, uh, my father's family is Dutch and Cherokee and English, and they worked as coal miners and moonshiners, whereas my mother's family, um, lawyers and ministers and suffragettes, were French Huguenot and German Jewish and Irish Catholic and Scottish Presbyterian. And in addition, my most cherished playmates in Tennessee were born-again Baptists. So forget the melting pot. Uh, my own head has always been a regular cesspool of <laughs> conflicting national, political, religious, and class taboos. So that crossing cultural lines of death for me as a writer has not necessarily been the swashbuckling act of defiance that it might appear. Often I have merely stumbled across them without realizing until too late. Even though some people in my Tennessee hometown uh, now cross to the far side of the street when they see me coming, <laughs> and even though one critic uh, labeled me the Andrew Dice Clay of feminism, <laughs> I don't often intentionally break group taboos. I just don't always know what they are because to add to my problems, I've lived uh, in Vermont for the last 25 years and uh, <laughs> taboos always arrive there about 10 years late. <laughs> Throughout my writing career, um, I have always received the worst reviews in recorded history, but quite early I realized that there are actually two kinds of bad reviews. The first kind says, uh, this is a terrible book and here's why. And when you get one of those, you have to actually consider the possibility that you've written a bad book. But the second type says, this is a terrible book, it's the worst book since the Valley of the, Bo of the Dolls and the author should be flayed alive on the steps of the New York Public Library. And when you get a review like that, you know that you have stepped across the reviewer's line of death. Uh -huh. You have broken a personal taboo and you are dealing with the reviewer's unconscious. <laughs> and at that point, it becomes an interesting exercise to try to find out a little bit more about the reviewer's private life <laughs> and figure out just what taboo it is that you've broken. At this point, it might be elucidating to redefine the word taboo in terms of modern psychological jargon. As far as I can tell, a taboo is roughly the same thing as an assumption. And when you apply an assumption to a category of people, what you have is a stereotype. So in other words, when you break a taboo, what you are actually doing is challenging an assumption or defying a stereotype. And 
of course, what is considered normal behavior for one group is taboo for another. Uh, for instance, in the South, it's um, taboo ever to say no or to put someone else in a position of having to say no to you. So I remember when I first arrived in uh, New York after 18 years in Tennessee, a magazine editor said, uh, would you write a piece for my magazine? And since I didn't want to, I said, um, well, thank you so much for asking me, but I'm going to go on vacation next week. So in the South, you would have said, uh, no, thank you. Why don't you go away? But since this man was a Yankee, he said, well, how about next month? <laughs> so I said, well, you know how much I admire a magazine, and I would absolutely love to write a piece, but <laughs> unfortunately, my parents are coming next month. <laughs> So to a southerner, you would have said, I hate your magazine, and I wish you'd drop dead. <laughs> but being a Yankee, he said, well, how about the month after that? <laughs> so this went on, and finally I had to say, to break my southern taboo and say, no, I don't want to write for your magazine, at which point he became absolutely furious. And he said, um, but why couldn't you just say no in the first place? Here you've been leading me on, and you've been wasting my time. So I had broken a Yankee taboo because, as you probably know, wasting time is taboo in New York. <laughs> anyway, in closing, um, there's an Eastern saying that, that I especially like that goes, um, leave the world behind and become a world within yourself. I have always taken this to mean, correctly or not, that one way each of us as individuals can contribute to healing our poor, ailing earth is by healing ourselves, by making ourselves whole again, by deliberately crossing every line of death that we can locate within our own heads, and by reclaiming those lost aspects of ourselves which have been banished by our strangling webs of personal and cultural taboos. Thank you. Next we're going to hear <coughs> from Meredith Tax. Meredith Tax is the author of The Rising of the Women a history book, Families, a picture book, and two historical novels, Rivington Street and Union Square. She was a founding chair of the Penn Women's Committee and is currently a vice president of Penn American Center and chair of the newly formed Women's Committee of International Penn and predominantly the one responsible for setting that up. Meredith Tax will focus on four uh, areas of taboo she considers of particular importance. Taboos on sex, race, especially interracial relations, politics, especially of the left, and divisions among feminists, and the relations between mothers and daughters. Well, actually, I'm only going to hit a couple of those points. I've revised it somewhat <laughs> since I sent you that outline. <laughs> The women's movement developed in struggle against certain taboos. It used to be taboo, for instance, to go places alone without the protection of a male. Is this echoing too much? 
it was taboo to be ambitious for oneself rather than dedicated to a life of serving others. It was taboo to identify with other women rather than one's husband, family, or people. Sometimes one's very existence violated a taboo. When I was growing up, to be both smart and a girl was to embody an unbearable contradiction, to which the only appropriate response was that of my relatives, she's so smart it's a shame, or what a waste. Such taboos were, of course, reflected in literature and literary standards, it being inconceivable that second-rate people could produce first-rate books. Either women's subject matter, their own lives, lacked sweep and grandeur, or if they tackled subjects men considered major, they did so in a manner inevitably flawed by the minginess of their perceptions. Our movement documented this dynamic from the first, knowing that women's place in literature reflected her place in the world. But this subject is too vast to cover tonight, so I will concentrate on two specific areas of taboo, sex and race. In a 1980 essay entitled, Women Have Only Just Begun to Write About Sex, to which I'm deeply indebted, Anne Snittow began to examine the way men and women write about sexual experience. And she says, when it became legally and socially possible for serious women novelists like Doris Lessing to write about their sexual feelings when they no longer paid a high social or economic price for having dared both to sleep with more than one man and to discuss this fact in public, the effect was not as if a lid had been taken off a pot so that rich active sexual experiences could bubble out. Instead, alongside hope and occasional ecstasy, their books are about the pain of women, their social oppression, and sexual repression. When I was growing up in the 50s in the Midwest, it was impossible to read about sex, especially from a woman's point of view. Forever Amber was as close as you could get. <laughs> Mainly, there were war books, and to get to the sex, you had to get through an awful lot of war first. <laughs> Within a few years, that completely changed. Remember the late 60s? The women's movement developed in tandem with what was called the sexual liberation movement. Together they produced an explosion of written information about sex and a proliferation of literature about sexual experience. From the beginning, there was both overlap and tension between these two movements. Would the new sexual freedom liberate women to experience herself, to own her own sexuality, to range widely in her tastes as men did without being punished for it? Or, would her newly described capacity for multiple orgasm and the recognition that she too felt desire merely make her into a more attractive commodity to be more efficiently exploited. In literature, as in life, any move forward is fraught with contradiction. Look at the sexual history of the last 20 years. I must qualify this by saying that until very recently, indeed until Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill were on the box, public discussion of sexuality was conducted almost entirely in terms of white middle-class fantasies and behavior. The reality of what sexual liberation might mean for black, Hispanic, Native American, Asian American, or working class people went unexplored. That being said, one must observe that almost as soon as sexual freedom for women became possible to imagine, due to the combined effect of the women's liberation movement and birth control technology, the fragile shoots of possibility were trampled by vast herds of people running in the opposite direction, either in panic at the loss of a single moral standard or in terror 
at what more sexual freedom for men might do to women. And this panic preceded the AIDS epidemic, though it did have something to do with the sudden visibility of gay sexuality in its many varieties and with the rapid proliferation of heterosexual choices and coercions both. Were Americans, not just the right wing, but the people influenced by them, so frightened by the possibility of unrestrained female lust that they preferred a return to the repressions of their youth? Were women frightened of it themselves? For a current of Puritanism exists in the women's movement as elsewhere. Or was the likelihood of exploitation always so much stronger than the possibility of liberation that retreat was inevitable and wise? A retreat that developed on the part of some feminists into full-scale legal campaigns for censorship of sexual expression, like the Pornography Victims' Compensation Bill now before the Senate Judiciary Committee, it being easier to find solutions to male violence in the symbolic realm than to create the kind of solidarity that could really bring about social change. Retreat is also visible in women's literature. After an initial burst of fiction about exploring sexual possibilities, we stopped, for the most part, presenting sexual experiences either liberatory or the end, happy or unhappy end. We tend to present sex as part of a complex deal, we writers, perpetually being negotiated between men and women, women and women, women and society. Sex is part of the problematic, not an escape from it. Rather than show sexual conquests as achievements, as men often do in their writing, or make sexual experience bear the weight of transcendence, we use it as one more way to show character and social detail. Except for one or two science fiction writers, feminist novelists can hardly, it seems, even imagine sex as free play in free space. Of course, most of us are social realists. There is, on the other hand, a vast fantasy literature of the female orgasm available in such things as silhouette desire romances with their uniform red covers, and commercial novels that read like advertising copy packaging sex along with other forms of consumption. Read these books and you will become convinced that it is impossible to say anything interesting in fiction about the female orgasm. It may be that as bad money drives out good, mass-produced orgasms in uniform red covers make good writing about good sex impossible for our generation. Feminist novelists have certainly preferred to write about bad sex, either because we have such a wealth of collective experience to draw on, <laughs> or because bad, alienated, or narcissistic sex can be used to reveal character more easily than good. <laughs> While taboos about sex in the novel are now uncertain, taboos about race have never been deeply questioned. True, there are more writers of color than before, although there are still very few considering the possibilities. But even the small and fragile degree of integration that has happened in American workplaces, schools, and city life has not been reflected in our fiction. And I want to explore this issue from my own experience. My first novel, Rivington Street, was a large-scale historical work about Jewish life and politics before World War I with a huge cast of characters. I sent a copy to Alice Childress, a playwright and novelist whom I have great respect for. She was generous in her praise, but concluded by asking, with all this great number of characters, couldn't you have included just one measly little black character? Would it have been so hard? Weren't we there too? I was struck by her criticism because it was just. There were black people trying to get into the very garment industry I wrote about. In fact, I had gone out of my way to find them and include them in my history book on the subject. Why hadn't I put them in the novel? Had I been afraid to write a black character? Afraid I wouldn't do it well? Afraid I had no right to do it? No, 
I could have used that excuse if my decision had been conscious, but my fear and avoidance had been unconscious, indicating the presence of a powerful taboo. I decided to rectify the error in my next book, Union Square, a sequel to the first with the same characters, and introduced a black woman character, Ulitha Jones, who'd been working in the same factory as one of my main characters, Sarah, during a big strike that was the climax of Rivington Street. But Sarah hadn't even noticed her. In Union Square, Sarah hits herself on the head for her blindness and starts to pay attention. But Ulitha remains a minor character in the book. The story still belongs to Sarah and her family. The problem continued to trouble me, though I wondered why I was so worried about it. There were plenty of black women writers to create black characters. Still, something was wrong. I felt a taboo at work inside me. My next novel was set in New York in 1979. It arose from my feelings about two little boys in my daughter's kindergarten class that year, children who were so disruptive and unusual in their behavior that I couldn't forget them. They had a disturbing relationship, tinged with SM in a way that seemed to imply sexual abuse in the case of one, and at least a very violent environment in the case of the other. This was in a school where about a third of the kids were white and middle class, and the rest were black and Hispanic, many very poor, living in welfare hotels or the projects. The school community, while integrated educationally, was segregated socially. Very few of the black or Hispanic parents were active in the school activities where white parents met, and the children seldom had play dates outside their own group, partly because everyone's life was so complicated it was difficult to arrange them. I was a single mother at the time, struggling very hard to survive, and couldn't figure out what to do about these two little boys who worried me. I spoke to the teacher. Another mother spoke to the principal. Eventually, a social worker was called in. What was the result? The violent boy got counseling and was put in a special school for the next year. The masochistic boy's mother pulled him out of school completely when people started asking questions, and it turns out this happens all the time. And he'd already changed schools twice, and nobody keeps track of kids like that because there isn't any computer for it. In any case, I was stretched as thin as I could go at the time, barely able to care for my own kid, let alone anybody else's, and I didn't know what should have been done. But I did know that part of the problem and what prevented me from knowing how to address it better was segregation. I was living in a way so cut off from black people that I didn't even know anybody who could help me figure out what was going on with those kids. And I had not always lived that way and knew it was not inevitable that people do so. Ten years later, this brooding began to turn into a novel. I started out with a first-person narrator rather like myself, only flakier. Liddy, recently divorced, floundering about, having all kinds of problems taking care of her kids, who gets drawn into a mystery at her kid's school and has to intervene for reasons caused by the plot. I moved the location to a made-up school district downtown and made it necessary for Liddy to leave her comfortable Second Avenue Bohemia and go into the projects near the river to find the parents of an angry, messed-up little boy for whom she's taken temporary responsibility. And here she meets and eventually becomes rather uneasy friends with a very interesting black woman named Eleanor, who has decided to run for the school board. I'll let you imagine the rest. Since I was writing in the persona of Liddy, I planned to show Eleanor through her eyes, colored by Liddy's mixture of mystification and idealization and guilt. But as I wrote, this began to feel more and more impossible. It was like there was another character inside me, Eleanor, who was determined to speak for herself, whether or not I wanted her to. And how could I write about overcoming the mental effects of segregation if I was unwilling to overcome them myself in my own narrative strategy? 
I did a lot of agonizing over this. But finally, Eleanor got too strong for me to resist, so I let her seize the narrative. And the rest of the book alternates between her voice and Liddy's. Even though I went through such a struggle writing a draft of this book, I wasn't prepared for the responses I got. Some of my friends were appalled. These were people who cared for me, who knew a lot about publishing and didn't want me to ruin my life. They said, you can't get away with this, reminding me what had happened to William Styron and the autobiography of Nat Turner. They said, no one will publish it. They said, do you think black people will like it? They'll criticize you most of all. It didn't matter whether Eleanor was drawn well or badly, whether she was believable or ridiculous. She wasn't supposed to be in my book. And the fact that she was there made the book unsaleable, they said. It would have been hard to sell at best, they said, since it was about changing the public schools at a time when white people had written off the public schools, and it was a little 60s in its politics. <laughs> of course, being a writer, my first response was to assume the book was no good. And I still think it needs work, in fact. <laughs> but I had shown it to several agents along the way, and their response made it clear that my artistry, or lack of it, was not the issue. One of them, a black woman, said, my experience had showed her that when a book is about race, the subject, not the race of the writer, is the problem. Another recommended updating it to the present, but said she couldn't sell it anyway. I asked her how much of the problem was caused by the character's race, and she said only about 95%. <laughs> so I found there is a very powerful taboo against white writers writing about black characters. This taboo assumes that the gulf between blacks and whites in our society is so deep that even imagination cannot bridge it and should not try. The taboo probably dates from the 60s, when black power spokesmen said blacks had to define and express their own reality and only they were competent to do so. At the time, that may have made sense, but if writing is important at all, whom does it serve to let white people cop out on writing about anybody but themselves? I'm a novelist. The way I understand the world is by putting myself into other people's shoes and trying to see what it looks like from there. In a period when such empathy has been sorely needed, this taboo has given white writers permission to turn their backs on black people's reality and not even try to represent or understand it in literature as in life. We have produced a fictional literature that is deeply and painfully segregated, more than our music, our films, our drama, more even than TV sitcoms. I can think of very few contemporary adult novels that show blacks and whites as even part of the same world in any significant way, much less engage with both. In fact, writers have lagged behind reality, and there is more integration in the world than in our books. I grew up in a segregated Midwestern suburb that made me feel like a freak. I hated that world, and I hate the way both sexism and segregation limit our imagination and possibilities. And I've promised myself that I will not reflect or perpetuate these things in my work. I'm going to rewrite my novel and get it published if it takes me 20 years and if I never make a penny from it, because that is how you fight a taboo. You name it, and then you violate it, and then you take your lumps. Jewel L. Gomez came originally from Boston, but has lived in New York for 20 years. She teaches at Hunter College and is Director of Literature at the New York State Council for the Arts. She reviews books for journals like Belle Lettres, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the New York Times, and The Nation, and has published two collections of poetry, 
and a new novel. Is it Gilda or Gilda? Gilda. The Gilda stories. Jewel Gomez will address the experience of living inside taboos, of being someone whose very existence is taboo, like women in the political world, Afro-Americans, lesbians, and artists. She'll also discuss ways of defying such marginalizing categorizations. Jewel Gomez. Black male, black heart, black lie, black magic, black ball, black Monday, black mood, black hole, black cat, blackard, black Mariah, black day, the black death. Black may be the color of my true love's hair, but it is also the symbol of the very worst that could happen to me. I was born into a world in which my very existence was made taboo in the common language. To be black means to be the symbol of all that is feared and hated in U.S. culture. It is to inhabit a taboo. It is to be the figure that mothers shield their children's eyes from or the figure over whom nuns make the sign of the cross. To take on that language that turns me in taboo, to tur that turns me into the condemned, means looking directly into the eye of the taboo and locating myself there. Historically, a taboo seems to be formed as a gut response to perceived danger such as using only the right hand to eat food in Muslim parts of Africa. Once on a trip to West Africa, I found myself in a local restaurant in which you picked out food, pointed to parts that you wanted and was served in a bowl, and then sat at a common table with people and ate with your hands. And I am left-handed. When I noticed that everyone at my table was staring at me, it took me a while to figure out why. And my appropriate response, what I considered my appropriate response, was to dump the food and start with a new plate. I didn't mind inhabiting their taboo. Um, it was a small thing to accept a social custom in a country in which that had become important for health reasons. It was very difficult to accept that taboo as a child in the school system of Boston, which refused to correct papers when it was seen that I had written them with my left hand. That was not a health problem. That was an irrational taboo. Taboos become a codification of methods of survival that end up taking on a symbolic and moral weight. Black may be the natural symbol of taboo since it embodies the unseeable and implies the unknowable. But when it, in actuality, represents a group of people whose physical presence is problematic for the dominant culture, it is no surprise that black no longer means mystery or adventure, but becomes danger and destruction in our unconscious. Black has evolved into a negative magic, an appeasement of some god who can keep disaster at bay. 
The psychological effect of this type of subtle, sometimes indirect, linguistic subversion of one's identity are immeasurable. When I go back home to my neighborhood in Boston, the rage in black people, both young and old, is like smoke in the air, dampened down only by despair or surpassed by the disdain and distrust of white institutions. I personally am surprised in the mornings to find the buildings of our cities still standing. I remember when I was a teenager and the first black people were allowed to appear on television commercials. Family members would call out to each other and gather around the TV set to get a glimpse of the black girl selling ivory soap. I remember peering closely at the June Taylor dancers trying to pick out Duke Ellington's granddaughter. <laughs> In each case, we try to overlook the fact that while the proscription against Negroes had been lifted, the taboo against black had not. For the people chosen for these important breakthroughs were invariably so fair-skinned that their blackness had only symbolic meaning rather than reflecting an actual change in the vision. Here I use the taboo against black more extensively because it is the one I began living with at the earliest age. And the one that seems, because of its explicit propagation through the language, the most insidious to me. But one could also make a case for the taboos against women in this society, or against lesbian in this society, or against women in connection to any sexual identity at all in this society. And invisibility is a major weapon in upholding these taboos. One of my favorite um, examples of this invisibility is uh, the L.A. Law case, which uh, was an episode of the uh, show L.A. Law in which two women, in celebration of uh, a victory in their law firm, walk out to their, car their car respective cars in the parking lot and kiss goodnight, not once, but twice, fully on the mouth, um, and then with the expected uh, sort of awkwardness afterwards uh, when both of them realize what they have done on national television. <laughs> um, the network executive's response to the press's attention to this kiss was to issue a press release to say that we didn't see what we actually saw. <laughs> it, it wasn't a lesbian kiss. It was actually a pretty good imitation of a lesbian kiss. Um, but essentially, it was like uh, you know, gaslighting you. You didn't really see that. For me, and I think uh, for those of us who inhabit one or more taboos, and I, I could say that I think most of us inhabit at least one, if we would look deeply enough and admit it. Um, for those of us who inhabit one or more taboos, the idea of upholding the tradition of prescriptive behavior becomes less accept acceptable. Certainly as a black lesbian who writes, I am called upon to chip away at the taboo each time I sit down at my PC or send material out for publication. 
most publishers and editors in this country still believe that it's surprising that black people can write and certainly a miracle that we can write anything that is of interest to the general public. They are so surprised, in fact, that they don't usually bother to even edit our material when they <laughs> accept it for publication. <laughs> to inhabit these taboos and, on top of that, be the director of the literature program of a state funding agency offers an even more complex opportunity to respond to some of these taboos. I'm regularly required to convince publishers of popular literary magazines, contemporary literary magazines, or curators of reading series, or publishers of novels, that they haven't even begun to break through the barriers of taboo by doing special Black History Month series, or by publishing Alice Walker or Derek Walcott or Toni Morrison or James Baldwin. As fine as these people are as writers, they represent what has already been accepted by those who help to create and sustain taboos, that is the commercial publishing establishment. My outline of my position within these taboos is not presented by way of protest but rather as an indication of how powerful it can be to claim that dangerous place that is taboo. Feminism, as well as the black power movement of the 60s, helped me to not only recognize the prescriptions against my existence, but also to revel in that outsider status. From this position, I feel I see a larger world, those things that ta taboos do not allow most people to see. Until a group of people began to examine the role of pornography in the society and some others tried to dictate what was appropriate erotic expression for women in the mid-1980s, most of us hadn't understood how crucial our expression of the erotic was to us as women. We'd accepted that taboo against sexual expression in response to very real sexual exploitation without looking at how we might reshape that sexual expression. When Jesse Helms took up that rallying cry against sexual expression in the arts, it is not accidental that it was aimed specifically at four lesbians, Audre Lorde, Minnie Bruce Pratt, Christos, and Holly Hughes, two of whom were women of color, Karen Finley, who deliberately identifies her work as a feminist, which in some circles is the equivalent of being a lesbian, um, and Tim Miller, a gay man. These are people tabooed in our society. They are easy targets and not expected to be able to defend themselves and not expected to find much support around the country. Helms' targeting of this particular group of people sparked an important movement for artists in this country, opening up an awareness of the taboos still binding us and positioning artists to explore the significance of their work in a way many had not done before. It also helped to create the first national foundation for the support of lesbian and gay performance artists as a direct result of this um, banning of performance artists uh, Tim Miller and Holly Hughes. And I find it not a coincidence that in this week reading the paper, noticing that um, 
highways, the performance space in Los Angeles, which acted and still acts as a sponsor for this new foundation for lesbian and gay performance artists, was just turned down for a grant by the NEA board. When several black people challenged my right and when I started creating my novel to create a black vampire character, claiming I was playing into society's association of black with danger and death, I decided to take on the challenge of reshaping the myth and dispelling the taboo rather than shrinking back from it. When editors uh, responded to the submission of my magazine at commercial presses with letters um, saying either, well, we've already done a black woman this year, um, or we can't really have a, a vampire who's black because it goes completely against the mythology, um, or we can't have a black vampire who's also a lesbian, it's too many things, it's too confusing. <laughs> Um, I realized, um, somewhat akin to what Lisa was saying, what I was getting was uh, the editor's personal fears um, and responses to uh, subtle taboos, um, fears of blood and the connection of women to blood and taking it on as a powerful thing. The editor's response was uh, a fear of women heroes in uh, mythological or fant fantasy writing. The editor's response was a f their own fear of black women as central figures in a narrative or as heroes. It was their fear of open sexuality in written narrative. So for me, the good news, since I did actually finish my novel, it's gone into the second printing and about to come out in London. The me for me, the good news is that we can take on those charges rather than deny them. We can say there is something good happening outside of acceptable society. Our perspective is bigger and our survival is more crucial to that of society's survival than anyone really wants to acknowledge. And our strength comes from accepting outsider status and not trying to distance ourselves from many who've been described as taboo because it is them who is taboo today and you tomorrow. In her poem, Litany for Survival, Audre Lorde, again, as she frequently does, speaks through the veils that have been dropped over us to clarify how we can look at ourselves and see our power, even as we are described as taboo. She says, and when we speak, we are afraid. Our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid, so it is better to speak remembering we were not meant to survive. Thank you. Sharon Olds, who has enriched many of us by her poetry over the years, teaches at the graduate 
creative writing program at New York University and at Goldwater Hospital. Her latest book, The Father, will be published by Knopf in May. Sharon Olds will offer her personal musings on tab taboos in general. I want to say um, a few of the thoughts that came to me when I was thinking of coming here tonight and learning and listening and talking um, together about taboos and um, read a couple of short poems. I also looked up the word taboo because I was so anxious at my um, my avoidance of thinking about the subject and preparing, the whole idea of thinking about taboos was making me extremely um, nervous. So I thought if I looked up the word and um, that I would have somewhere to begin, I discovered I couldn't spell it. I was looking in the wrong place. It wasn't in the dictionary. Um, but then I found it. And, um, and found it was a, a Tonga word uh, similar to um, a Maori word, Samoan word, and Tahitian word, um, meaning sacred in the sense of prohibited, taboo, such as may be violated only at the cost of release of evil working magical force. That was the religious definition. And then from the other side, strongly disapproved as conflicting with conventions. So then I began to think of what might, what I thought might be some taboo references. Step on a crack, break your mother's back, came to my mind. Step on a crack in a poem, do you break your mother's back? Break your mother's back in a poem, do you break? your mother's back. Your mother breaks your back. You write it in a poem. What happens? That's what I don't want to think about. And um, I have a taboo, I realized, uh, against thinking about taboos. I fear that taboos are thought about at the cost of release of evil working magical force. Now I find tonight this isn't true, but alone in my apartment I was afraid. <laughs> I feel in poetry, in a way, since what it seems to me now to be is what happens when the human thinks about those closest, most intense, passionate experiences of sex, death, tribal grief or joy, naming, birth, that we, um, all cultures have had this thing called poetry where we begin to utter in a rhythmic way, that rhythmic murmuring, murmuring or crying out about experience. It feels to me that if one, while one is writing, stays out of the way enough, that um, 
in, in a certain way, um, what will come through one is that singing of uh, death, of birth, of sex itself. And perhaps my fear about being too conscious of taboos is, is a fear of um, interfering too much uh, within, within that process. Um, <clears throat> I want to say a word about the taboo against writing apparently personal poetry. I say apparently because unless a poet has declared that she or he is writing autobiography, no one can be completely sure that it is 100% court reporting this poetry that's being written. Um, it is an art as well as a personal expression. Um, the, uh, at NYU and at Goldwater Hospital, we, uh, we talk always about the speaker. It's a convention so dear to my heart to talk about the speaker, what the speaker is saying um, in a poem. And I found it useful to think about something that I call the spectrum of loyalty and betrayal. Um, one writes a poem, uh, and the source of it, if it's a person, would recognize the, 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 the source's self in that poem. What does one do with that poem? There's a spectrum. Um, one sl r slips it into a drawer after writing it. One slips it into a locked drawer after writing it. One slips it in code into a locked drawer. Um, one writes it and then burns it. Uh, this is a very different kind of action from Irina Ratushenskaya in her cell, writing with the match on the soft soap and then washing after memorizing and then writing the next line with the match and the soap. She was a writer. She wrote it and then learned it and then washed it. Um, Muriel Rukeyser would say, if someone wrote a poem and then told it to us and then ripped it up, where would it exist? Where would it go uh, from here? To go further towards the loyalty side of the spectrum, um, not to write the poem at all. This person might find it at some point, to be very safe, to be even more loyal. Don't think those thoughts, right? So if you go all the way to that extreme, it seems to me that one is in a realm of spiritual suicide. So looking at the other side of it, mm, not slipping it in the drawer, one wants to send it out into the world, changing the names and sending it out under a pseudonym to a distant country <laughs> <laughs> to submit it. Um, then mm, the same names to the distant country, the um, local magazine with a pseudonym, with one's own nim. Uh, and then if you go very far, you 
uh, go um, to a party to find out someone's secrets and publish them with phone numbers. And <laughs> so if you go all the way over in that direction, I feel that one is then in a, a realm of what it would feel to me a kind of spiritual murder. Now, all I know about this spectrum is that um, no one knows where she should be on it. Um, and there is until she finds out by the usual method, which is making mistakes. Um, and for every hundred writers, there are a hundred places on that spectrum that are right for a particular day. Um, How do we know what hasn't been written about? Maybe by asking ourselves what we should not write about. But I think for some of us, it would be a problem to on purpose set out to break a taboo. That um, if a poem comes to us, I always, in my inside out, vision of the world from having had this Christian training as a child, I see it, things coming from the psyche from the like upper corners <laughs> of the room. Um, if a poem comes to us, uh, fine, wonderful, please. But um, for our work of art to have its freedom and its autonomy, its chance to be most alive, it, we can't be asking it to carry too much for us in its pockets. It needs to be able to um, play um, art, even about the most terrible things, I think needs to be, to some extent, some kind of play. Um, written art, poetry, some kind of dancing in language. Meredith was saying before, look at all these people here. What do we, we do with them? They're here. And of course, a poet knows what they want to do. So I'm going to read two <laughs> poems. <laughs> when it comes, even when you're not afraid, you're pregnant. It's lovely when it comes. And it's a sexual loveliness. Right along that radiant throat and lips, you feel the first hem of it. And at times, the last steps across the bathroom, you make a dazzling trail, the petals the flower girl scatters under the feet of the bride. And then the colors of it sometimes an almost golden red or a black scarlet, the drop that leaps and opens slowly in the water, gel sack of a galaxy, the dark lobed pool calm as a lake on the back of the moon. It is all woundless, even the little spot in jet and crimson spangled tights who flings her fine tightrope out to the left and to the right in that luminous arena, green upper air of the toilet bowl. She cannot die. 
There will be an egg in there, somewhere, minute, winged with massive, uneven pinions of blood, cell that up close is a huge, soft, pocked planet, but it was not anyone yet. Sometimes, when I watch the delicate show, like watching snow or falling stars, I think of men, what could it seem to them? to see the blood pour slowly from one's sex, as if the earth sighed slightly and you felt it and saw it, as if life moaned a little in joy and you were I saw my father naked once. I opened the blue bathroom's door, which he always locked. If it opened, it was empty. And there, surrounding by the, surrounded by the glistening turquoise tile, sitting on the toilet, was my father. All of him, and all of him was skin. In an instant, my gaze ran in a single swerving, unimpeded swoop up, toe, ankle, knee, hip, rib, nape, shoulder, elbow, wrist, knuckle, my father. He looked so unprotected, so seamless and sweet, like a girl on the toilet. And even though I knew he was sitting to shit, there was no shame in that, but even a human peace. He looked up, I said sorry, backed out, shut the door, but I'd seen him. My father a shorn lamb, my father a cloud in the blue sky of the blue bathroom. My eye had driven up the hairpin mountain road of the naked male. I had turned a corner and found his flank unguarded, gentle bulge of the hip joint, border of the pelvic cradle. Um, we will take questions now if you have them. Uh, I, do we have microphones down there? Yeah. Uh, that's from up there. To say. <laughs> so shy. Hi, thank you very much. I have three questions <laughs> about the scarcity of uh, black female writers. Is it true or is it that white female male writers do not take them seriously? Question number two about racism. Why is it, that, uh, why is it black white racism? What happens to the rest of us? I think we're having a little trouble understanding you. Could you repeat your questions, yes, please? Yes, the first question is about the scarcity of black female writers. Scarcity of black of female, female writers. writers. Is it true, or is it that white female or male writers do not take them seriously? Question number two, about racism. Why is it always black 
against white, what happens to the rest of us, meaning Latinos, so on and so forth. And number three, about the panel, why aren't women of color telling us about taboos, Arab women, Pacific uh, women, Latino, Asian, Caribbean? Uh, I ask this because I always find these concerns whenever I uh, uh, go to any kind of presentation, even my own community, the gay community, I'm always uh, pinned down uh, against the rest. There is black and white and then the rest of us, always invisible, and that's a big taboo for me. Thank you. Did you want someone in particular to answer? I think that all of us were referring to people of color in general, not just black and white, but um, uh, well, Jewel, do you want to? Well, I was referring specifically to black because I wanted to use the 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 thing in language about black specifically, um, and, you know. And I agree that that frequently happens when you end up using the term people of color, you end up negating the full spectrum of experience. Um, I was not asked to be on the panel to represent people of color, but rather to think about taboos, and I chose what I wanted to talk about. Um, not in thinking that I was representing people of color, but so much as representing my own specific taboo. Um, but I think your point is, is certainly well taken, because it does happen all the time. I'd like to respond for a moment. Um, I don't. I think you might have misunderstood something I said. I did not mean to say that there was a scarcity of black women writers. Indeed, there is a wonderful abundance of black women writers. I meant to say there is a scarcity of integrated fiction. And in regard to having women who are Latino be writers, and represent represented. I mean, representing themselves on our panels, I would be very glad to know of, of such women living in New York whose work you could recommend. I agree that we know too little, either because of their inability to break into mainstream publishing or because of language barriers. And I would be very glad if you would give me a list of such people. Is there such a There's thing, such as, a thing a good as a good taboo? taboo? I give that one to Sharon Old. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, tr I tried to think about that. Um, like a taboo against uh, hurting children. Mm. Someone said, no, that's not a taboo. It's, um, I forgot to ask them what it was. I mean, it's a good idea. But um, a taboo, uh, if it's defined as something which has to do with superstition rather than, than um, human rights, then I guess there isn't one. Well, but it depends on that. Jewel, what do you think? Well, I think what happens is taboos evolve, and they frequently begin from a place that had a very deliberate meaning, um, such as the taboo I mentioned against um, eating with your left hand. The reason that people didn't eat with their left hand is for health reasons, because the left hand was the hand you used to clean yourself in the toilet, so you did not eat with your left hand. So it was clearly a way to protect oneself uh, for health reasons, it has evolved into a meaningless taboo 
since that seems to be sort of irrelevant um, at this point in, in, in most social situations, certainly in contemporary uh, industrial society, it's sort of irrelevant. Um, but yes, I, I think there are such things as good taboos. I think the incest taboo is one of the ones you think of immediately, um, and one that seems to, to be ignored quite frequently, um, but one that grew out of a need to protect the family unit, an understanding that that kind of shifting of balance of power and affection potentially destroyed the family unit as well as destroyed individuals within the unit, which of course still maintains its importance in our society. I think what we end up looking at is a number of taboos that have outlived their usefulness because they are based on social situations that no longer exist. I want to say I loved all of you. It was just marvelous, marvelous. But my question is mostly to Lisa. <laughs> My question is to Lisa Alther. I read your Kinflick so many times and laughed and cried, and I said, I want to write the Irish Catholic version of Kinflix. Where do I begin? <laughs> Give me a start. Thank you very much. I don't know. I can't think of an answer. <laughs> well, that was short. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Lindsay Abrams. Uh, when Jewel mentioned um, the uh, issue about incest being a taboo, it made me think about the fact that there's two ways, really, of thinking about what is taboo, particularly for writers. Um, what is taboo in society and what people actually do, and what is taboo in what we can speak about? And I think one of the issues of being a person in the either modern or postmodern world now is one gets the sense that almost nothing is taboo anymore. And the only thing really that's left that's taboo is what you can talk about. And certainly um, with the um, women's movement, a number of issues such as incest, um, such as um, child abuse, and the list goes on and on and on, have really been introduced into the discourse of the culture. And I think uh, the question that this man asked um, uh, also has to do with that. There are many discourses that are going on, feminist discourses, discourses from various, a variety of ethnic groups, uh, all sorts of people, but it's very difficult now for those discourses to break into what is the main discourse and to be heard as something other than a special interest group or, uh, or whatever. And I think that one of the most important issues to me about what you all spoke about tonight is that um, women writers um, break a taboo simply by speaking about a great variety of things and that ultimately, mm -hmm. slowly but surely, that will make a difference in what can be talked about by everyone. For white writers to write about black people then say, the 60s, what would make now better? How would your <laughs> imagination be able to fill that gap better today than it could have 30 years ago? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a question everybody would have to answer for themselves. That's 
it's now I'm the right age. I mean, and I was too young then. <laughs> but that may not have been true of someone else. But I think that now also we're starting to see that particularity is very important and so is joining and that it is possible to have both. You don't have to choose between being a woman and being Jewish or being black and being a woman or being any number of things. And it is also possible to make sympathetic leaps. And I'm, I'm not saying it is possible to write a black character as a white writer now. I experienced great difficulty doing so. And I think that actually that is the best part of the book. It's the white character I have to revise. But um, it's, it, it's as, I, as I said, it was not an easy thing. And I think maybe 10 years from now, it'll be easier if we're lucky. On the other hand, if we're not, it may become totally impossible even to discuss it. Lucille Clifton said something wonderful about that um, during, at a poetry workshop at uh, Squaw Valley uh, where everybody was bringing in a new first draft every morning for seven mornings. And, uh, uh, so, and Lucille said to a white poet who asked her about how she felt about some of the poems that were coming in by white poets about black subjects or black people. And she said, well, I think that if you want, Lucille Clifton said, I think if you want to write about me, write about you and me. Because then at least you'll know something about part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. I like the panel. I like the panel to discuss uh, the taboo of S and M in the lesbian woman's uh, literary uh, cycle. I like uh, Ms. Gomez to particularly answer this question. I'd love to. <laughs> I love talking about sex out loud. <laughs> um, I think it's it's very it's very difficult for women to locate themselves within a discussion about any kind of sexuality, um, because of um, well you know all the reasons the oppression of women um, using sex, um, exploitation of women sexually, um, sexual abuse of women, um, so that any any discussion of women and sexuality I think heterosexual. Uh, and lesbian and bisexual is scary to, to women in general. I think when you then begin to layer on a discussion of particularized desire growing out of very specific kinds of either games or uh, equipment or things that play with the psychic experience, which I think I think of all sexual joy as is interacting with psychic experience. But when when that experience, such as SM, seems to be reaching for a very specific connection to psychic experience and need, people find it terrifying. I also think that we are still so close to the place of where women um, can so easily be abused um, and are 
and so close to the place where women are routinely abused, um, both in, in the media um, and uh, if, you know, in the headlines, the cases we see in the headlines, that it seems too frightening to either admit that it is part of female desire, which in some cases it is, or to allow it to be expressed. Um, and I think that is a response to trying to develop safe places for women. Um, and I think it has come out in other ways too, in the discussions of butch femme, which have been, been uh, frowned upon in the lesbian community. Um, certainly in contemporary discussions of bisexuality and what that means in terms of women's response to patriarchy um, as well as sexual desire. So I'm not at all surprised that people uh, are frightened of allowing the discussion or the inclusion of it in, in narrative. Um, but I always have felt, um, and in fact I was told once, you know, there are some things we shouldn't discuss. And that is the key line for me to say, oh, what is it? And when do we start talking? Um, because, again, it's... It's the silence that, that lets things continue to be dangerous to us. It seems to me that a lot of the, uh, that the basis for the taboo uh, among a lot of feminists is uh, the f fear that it's just replicating male-female relationships and, and we had hoped that we were doing something new. Yeah. I just want to say that, I mean, I've been around the feminist movement for about 25 years, and um, I, I think of the 80s as a time when people, that was a dirty word, taboo. It was, feminism was a taboo. Mm. It's hard to believe, I mean, because I was here in the late 60s and 70s. And what I saw tearing the movement apart was pitting lesbians against heterosexual women, black women, women of color against white women, all of this. I mean, when I want, would, when were women going to get together? Because <laughs> it's the only time we're going to find strength is in unity. And uh, I mean, it seems if, if one wasn't writing about somebody of color, I mean, I'm not, that's another taboo age. I mean, I noticed we haven't mentioned age. That's a big taboo. An old woman. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and a fat woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, really. Uh, but uh, if, if, if I know as a white woman, I met black women when I was teaching in Bedford-Stuyvesant who were teachers, and I was rejected. And all, uh, many times through my experience, I have been rejected as a white person. So, I mean, it goes both ways. I mean, it really, we're, we're all victims, but we can all victimize. And we want to get away from that, at least I do. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I don't want to stop being afraid, but then sometimes there's a reason for fear. And I haven't, I published a magazine called The Feminist Art Journal and received very little um, help from lesbian, from the lesbian community. So, you know, uh, as I said, I'd like to, to know, you know, are we going to move ahead together? 
Is this the resurgence of feminism? Is there something new happening here? Or are we just, you know, rehashing stuff that we rehashed that went, that, well, our founding mothers started, the, our, the suffragists, not suffragists, started a long time ago. Why don't you take that now? Well, I, of course, the ideal would be if we got together. Um, I think that what we're dealing with tonight is writing, and writing always has to be particular. It, it has to deal with a particular experience, and it tends to be divisive in that sense. But maybe from the writing of enough of us, some generals generalities will come out. I don't know if anyone else has anything to say about this. I mean, we, we do the best we can about getting together. Uh, if we don't, I mean, we're going to lose everything unless we start getting together. That is clear, you know. We've already lost a lot. So maybe it's time to start thinking about what differences it's possible to overlook for the sake of getting somewhere, at least for a little while, or to discuss after the event, <laughs> whatever the event may be. Um, I think that we have been very bad at establishing areas of unity and areas of permissible difference, um, that we want everybody to be just like us, no matter what we're like. And that's not possible in a big movement. Hi. Um, I think from the tenor of the discussion, I think one of the crucial distinctions to make is between those taboos that exist in society, for better or worse, because people in general believe in them, w whether they should or not, and those taboos, in quotations, that exist because they are imposed on society by a very small minority of the power elite. Uh, the issue of abortion, a central issue, is a great example because there are some aspects of this issue which is so much discussed and, and one of the most organ organized around that one dare not, that are dare not to be raised that are precisely because they are the most popular aspects of the issue, uh, the, which demonstrate most clearly how the abortion issue is a way of using women as hostages to certain kinds of agenda that are in totally invidious, and that's why they're kept veiled. And it's not because most people want to do it that way. It's because it's possible to impose on society whole issues like the politics of absolute poverty or research and development for AIDS cure or on alternatives to CFCs and so forth. Whole issues are completely kept suppressed and aspects of issues like abortion that I mentioned. And then what happens is the process is to find ways by imposing silence by imposing even active cooperation and manipulating it to create the appearance of a consensus, that kind of consensus taboo, when it's really just a machine taboo. And it's so hard to not participate. I was wondering if anybody wanted to speak to that distinction and, and the process that goes on, including the liberal elite, the supposedly liberal elite, of enforcing the maintenance of the appearance of consensus where it's really you know, nasty machine politics. Well, in my way of seeing taboo, all taboos are 
imposed. But the thing is that you forget so that the very people or the very class or caste or group that uh, made up the taboos, that made up the original myth, forget that this was a myth, that this was made up, that this was designed to mystify the society. And everyone in this society believes the myth to some degree or other. It's a rare person who questions it in most societies, and it's usually the writers who do. The taboos are, are there to keep the myth from being demystified. Um, you couldn't discuss abortion. It was a complete uh, taboo when I was young. It has been demystified by feminism. It has been exposed and revealed, but it could easily go back to the way it was. And it would be because it was being imposed. I don't think it can go back to the way it was. I mean, the law may, but the taboo will never, I think. I don't know if that's responsive to what you were talking about, really. Will you uh, all join us inside for some wine?